Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hi, welcome to Fever Dreams. Uh, My name's Will Summer. I'm a political reporter at The Daily Beast and the author of an upcoming book on QAnon for HarperCollins. And I'm Aswin Subtang, but please call me Swin. I'm a senior political reporter at The Daily Beast and co-author of the book Sinking in the Swamp. All right, here on Fever Dreams, we're going to take you on plunges into the sometimes hilarious and sometimes scary world of the American right as they continue to influence our politics. Even in the aftermath of the Trump administration, the energy of these conspiracy theorists, these grifters, and these influencers is still pushing our mainstream political landscape closer and closer to a breaking point. Well, have you heard which guy has just been anointed the new permanent host of the 7 p.m. slot over at Fox News. Yeah, so this is the big shakeup over at Fox News. We've got Jesse Waters, the sort of prankster prince, the young imp of Fox News. Oh, did you watch his stuff back? It feels like an eon ago. I feel like I first started seeing the clips in the late Bush era of him being, ostensibly, he was a producer. I don't know what the fuck he was producing, but he was a producer on The O'Reilly Factor back before Bill O'Reilly got embroiled and scandaled and ejected from Fox News. But he was like Bill O'Reilly's sidekick. He would come on the show, tell Bill O'Reilly how great he was, and Bill O'Reilly would send him into the wild with a camera crew to, like, ambush random enemies of Bill O'Reilly. Yeah, exactly. Jesse Waters has sort of gone through so many permutations since then that even I was just sort of dimly remembering this time when he was like Bill O'Reilly's sort of man out in the world. Like a huge idiot. Yeah, I mean, Bill O'Reilly's in the studio. Jesse Waters is dispatched. He's like his Ray Donovan. He's his fixer. He's going out and he's like harassing reporters on Bill O'Reilly's behalf. And then he got into Waters' world, which was kind of a segment he would do where it was like dumb people on the street basically yeah it would be like this weirdly pseudo fratty kind of pretty right-wing version of jay leno's jaywalking like it was incredibly boring it would just be going out into the world and making fun of people in manhattan for i don't know not freaking out enough about street crime and then interspersing that with random clips from old movies and tv shows or like a billy wilder film they loved doing that Something to stress is like people who didn't watch this at the time, it would be like, okay, so we're going to do a Waters World segment. And he goes up to someone and is like, hey, do you know what the Constitution is? And they say like, uh, is that an Instagram filter? And then it would show a clip of Humphrey Bogart being like, oh, boy. If you're listening to this and you haven't seen it, I kind of sadomasochistically urge you to Google around to unearth like old clips of it. I guess it's like a decade or a decade and a half old now. It's hard to overstate how fucking lame it was. This is what the Fox News audience apparently thought was funny or what the producers just assumed or deeply believed the Fox News audience would find funny. It's like, oh, okay, if we show one person not knowing what, like, the Seventh Amendment to the U.S. Constitution is and then show a clip from an Adam Sandler movie from the early 90s, that's comedy. 
That is comedy to the Fox News and Fox Business audience. He's sort of reinvented. Bill O'Reilly gets his head lopped off at Fox. He's out. But Jesse kind of burrows in and he becomes a Bill O'Reilly sleeper. He joins the five where he is sort of this mischievous scamp who's arguing with Juan Williams. And he has kind of like Greg Gutfeld vibes, I would say. I think he's Greg Gutfeld's looper because they're kind of both the kind of like the comedy guy on Fox. Sort of, but neither of them are funny. In any, like, rational expression of the term. Like, Greg Gutfeld, yeah, with, like, Red Eye or whatever he used to do in the past iteration. It was billed as comedy, and even if you thought it wasn't funny, yeah, it was kind of like a comedy show. Jesse Waters doesn't even accidentally do anything funny. But what he does is he smirks. He has like a boat shoe wearing college dipshit affect to him where his thing is i'm just going to smirk and snark not even snark i don't even know what you'd call it just kind of be a dick about everything that a liberal on this panel would say that's it that's a shtick and apparently at fox news that is enough to get you to the edge of being a primetime star at Fox News. So what do you think it says about Fox that Jesse's now in kind of the pole position here? Well, it's not just him. It's him and Greg Gutfeld. They both, in the past few days, have been showered with good news from their higher-ups at Fox News. They've essentially both gotten promotions. It's very clear that the Fox News brass wants to portray them as the future of the network, not someone who is no longer working there and about roughly a million and a half years old, like Bill O'Reilly. But these guys, I mean, I don't know how old they are, but I guess you could argue that they are young, at least young looking to the average Fox News viewer. And I guess it's the Fox News version of what making a young, hip news show would look like, which is thoroughly depressing to me if you actually sit for a second to watch what these two guys produce. <laughs> Jesse Waters is 43, Greg Gottfeld's 57. I mean, so these guys are both pretty young in cable news terms. It's kind of the dawn of the age of the bad boys of cable news. And here's the other thing I would say about it. Both of these guys have a certain puckishness about them, sort of a playfulness and also sort of a nastiness with the playfulness. And you know what it is? It circles back to the thing we always talk about, the barstool Republican, right? We don't want these kind of like a talk radio blatherer like Sean Hannity who lacks a certain humor to his act or in a similar way, Laura Ingram. But Instead, we have, and also in a way, Tucker Carlson is, fits more, I think, in this Gutfeld mold. I mean, he, he's kind of the guy who, who laid down this formula originally. But these guys kind of, they add a little more theoretical levity to it. And then if you take offense to this or you think they're bad guys, you know, I mean, they're just joking around. Can't you take a joke? Gutfeld, number one rated late night comedy show. Right. And as we're finishing up raising a champagne glass to both Gutfeld and Waters, I want to take another quick stroll down memory lane to something that aired, what was it, like five years ago? Maybe more than that. Somewhere between five or ten years ago, I think. It was back when Jesse Waters was still the top Bill O'Reilly lackey, and he did one of his moronic man-on-the-street segments in Chinatown, New York City. And producer Jesse, let's play a clip from that just for a feast for the ears for our Fever Dreams listeners. Back in the book segment tonight, Waters World, in the first presidential debate, China was mentioned 12 times, mostly in a negative way, especially by Donald Trump. So we sent Waters down to New York's Chinatown to sample political opinion. Am I supposed to bow oh. to say hello? hello. <laughs> I like these watches, are they hot? JC Penny 398. <laughs> I think the more offensive part of it to me is just how cartoonishly unfunny the entire segment was. Like he didn't even try to be entertaining with his racism. It's the most 
hack shit imaginable. And I cannot stress this enough. It epitomizes virtually everything that comes out of either Gutfeld or Jesse Waters's mouth today when you watch them trying to do a serious or not so serious news program at Fox News. It's always just that. It's almost too flaccid and impotent to be offensive to anyone. But they relish in it because they think they're triggering blibs, and that's what they're paid there to do. Yeah, I mean, it's all pretty low-effort stuff, and now you can get two hours of it every night on Fox News. Oh, fantastic. Sure. So, Swin, you have a new article out in the Daily Beast about a new project My Pillow Baron Mike Lindell is working on. What's going on there? Friend of the show, a perennial character here on Fever Dreams. Okay, so... Will, have you been keeping track over more than the past 12 months how much money Mike Lindell has been shoveling, or at least says he has been shoveling into these efforts to overturn the election long after Election Day 2020 had passed, plowing money into efforts to spread Donald Trump's propagandistic lies about the 2020 election, and just trying to fund all these different fringe efforts to do as many elections crackdowns across the country as possible? Have you been following what the price tag that he says he has racked up for all of this stuff over the past, I don't know, 14, 15 months? I mean, I have to imagine it's a lot of money. How much is he spending on it? When we did a story on this a little over a year ago, he told us that he had already shoveled in roughly a million dollars of his own money. And this was to try to keep Donald Trump in power during the Trump to Biden chaotic transition. Now, this is something that to this day he has not coughed over documentation to us for. It's a little bit tricky to get Mike Lindell's personal financial records from him. God willing, one day that'll happen for us. But for the time being, just for our listeners' edifications, this isn't something that we're solely relying on the gospel of Mike Lindell. When he has told us that he has sent this amount of money to this person or this lawyer or this group, you and I have called these people and the ones of us who will get back to us and give us a straight answer. I think across the board, they have all said, it's like, oh yeah, it was easy. He just forked over a large sum of money to us. Wasn't that the case with like the cyber ninja type guys who he was working with before? Was that your experience with them? I mean, to make clear here, this is not the cyber ninjas. This is not proper noun cyber ninjas, not the actual group cyber ninjas, but sort of more broadly, the practice of being a cyber ninja, which is to say (laughs) sort of making elaborate claims about election fraud and, and taking a rich guy for some cash. Yes. Right. So After all this time, he claims that he has funded these various like-minded individuals and causes to the tune of $25 million and counting. And he also claims he has no plans to stop for the foreseeable future. This has gotten to the point where in the past two months, he has racked up a burn rate of a million dollars plus a month again according to Mike Lindell. And he estimates that that is what he's going to continue to do for the foreseeable future. Will, do you have any experience with the pillow industry? Do you have any idea how there is this much money in one man's pocket, this much liquid anti-democratic cash solely from coming from pillows that seem to be advertised not even so much on Fox News anymore? Well, yeah, I mean, I think people should think about this. So the right-wing media in this country, a pretty large industry. And if you think about something that's advertised constantly on that. And but here's the thing, it's not just pillows, right? You say, how often do people buy pillows? My pillow has sheets. They have they've kind of become like a textile company 
They make slippers. It's sort of like anything associated with coziness is in my pillow's wheelhouse. Now we're two years into the pandemic now. Obviously, people are at home a lot. I think they have like pajamas, sweatpants, that kind of stuff. So if you imagine that this is the brand of choice for 30% of the population, I mean, obviously, not all these people are buying my pillow. Let's even be conservative about that. Let's cut that to 10. That's still sure. tens of that's millions. Still, of I mean, that's still a lot of money to spend on a disastrous social media network called Frank Speech on sort of whoever comes up to you and says, oh, Mike, you know, I got a crazy idea for you. I mean, we know he supposedly took a county clerk. He basically like built her a safe house that she could hide out at for a while. I mean, this is a guy who's he's funding moonshots for election fraud. Not all of these things are going to work, but I think he's convinced that one of them will. Right. And it's one of these things where he's this apparently fabulously wealthy, flying on uh, private jets all the time kind of guy. And oftentimes the cliche and criticism of that specific type of person, not necessarily in the pillow related industries, is that they hoard too much of their cash. It's like, okay, what are you going to do with your millions or billions? Like you can't take it with you. Why aren't you giving so much of this to charity or causes you truly believe in at like a much higher burn rate than what you have? To his credit or discredit, Michael Lindell is doing the opposite of that. Right. So how is he spending this money now? Okay. So of that roughly million dollar a month burn rate, he says that approximately 250K of that a month is going to paying the payroll of this new little known group called Cause of America. Will, since you dabble in these spheres daily and frequently, have you heard of Cause of America? Does this ring a bell to you at all? The election period kind of launched a lot of of these new groups, but even I have not heard of Cause of America before. Okay. One reason why you may not have heard of it is because the website describes itself as a group and may even use the word nonprofit, even though it's not at all legally speaking a nonprofit. It's one of these groups that Lindell says he found it. He created it. And then I think back in the fall of late last year, he started sifting through resumes trying to staff it. This is what the group, which is ostensibly dedicated to quote unquote election integrity. We all know what that means in Donald Trumpian speak. It's obviously the exact opposite of any type of integrity. But this is what Lindell said in terms of explaining the group. Cause of America is our website. I wanted to form a go-to hub. It's an information hub and it's a communication hub. Anyone who wants to reach our network can reach us at Cause of America. Think of it as a library of evidence and information. Okay, so basically this thing is somewhere between a Dropbox and almost like a private chat room. But anyway, this is being branded as a new election group that is there to basically try to reclaim Trump's honor along with the other pro-Trump election groups that have sprouted up since January 6th, since election night 2020. The thing that makes this particular group unique is that unlike most, if not all, of the other groups that you and I talk about, this one is actually fronted and run by two women who are attendees at the January 6th riot in Washington, D.C. So, yeah, I mean, are we talking about here like people on the front lines punching cops? Did they steal a podium? Where do they fit in here? Well, I don't think they were quite that extreme, but they certainly were on the front lines in the sense that they were there and very proud to be there. One of them even claims that she had been questioned by the authorities about her role there and present at the U.S. Capitol that day. But basically, the two groups executives names are Ash Epp and Holly Chasm if I'm pronouncing their names correctly. And as I said earlier, they were present at the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. And they're just another example of how 
all of these people who are Stop the Steal veterans or who are January 6th ride veterans, or if not veterans, at the very least, enthusiasts and supporters of that kind of political violence, are finding their ways into the tentacles of the sprawling conservative movement. They're running for local elections. They're getting elected. They're still maintaining positions of local, if not national, influence. And they're starting all these different groups to continue election crackdown after election crackdown throughout the country. And these are two people that even in the context of Donald Trump, and 2020 election dead-enders, you could call them rather fanatical, shall we say. One of them was publicly celebrating pictures and photos that were coming out of lawmakers who were cowering under uh, desks or tables, basically afraid for their lives in the U.S. Capitol while the siege was underway. They've done things like posting things online, like accusing various Republican lawmakers of quote-unquote treason simply because they weren't subservient enough to Donald Trump's coup attempt. So that is the baseline of ideology that we're working with here. What do you think the larger takeaway is here that, I mean, this is Mike Lindell who funds a significant part of conservative media. What does it tell us that he's palling around with folks like this? Well, it's not just him. Obviously, he is an easy ask if you're trying to approach a very wealthy MAGA guy and say, yo, I have this new project. Can you cut me a check for six figures or even seven figures? You're probably going to have a better shot at getting it from him than someone like Peter Thiel, even if your group doesn't really end up doing anything quite tangible. But what it shows is that there is a gigantic, practically unending reservoir of money for these kinds of causes and these types of groups. It's not just Mike Lindell. It's a whole assortment of funders. It's a whole assortment of small uh, dollar grassroots donors who are keeping these things afloat more so now than they were at any time over the past year to the point where they're starting to try to get involved in the 2022 midterms elections. This is just something where the fever has not spiked yet. If I had to make a prediction here, one thing I would say is like, we have not at all seen how far this stuff is going to (laughs) go. Okay. And Speaking of things that have been getting out of hand recently, Will, you sat down recently and talked to an IT staffer who has worked at the U.S. House of Representatives who basically had his life torn apart by conservative and far-right media in a really grisly fashion. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, so this is the story of Imran Awan, who is sort of one of the first Trump-era victims of, I don't know if you want to call it like the fake news machine or the various conspiracy theories. And I thought his story has really sort of been underplayed. I think people obviously know what happened in Comet Ping Pong. They know what happened to Seth Rich's family in terms of conspiracy theories. But this is a guy who really just had his life and his family's lives and roughly about five people just had their lives obliterated by Donald Trump and his allies in the right-wing media. So I wanted to do this story and now talk about it on the podcast to kind of give this more attention. I think it's a cautionary tale about what happens when these guys really are allowed to run amok. So Imran Awan is a guy who is a an American success story. He was a teenager in Pakistan. Pakistan. He spent some money to get in the U.S. diversity visa lottery, wins it, brings his family over. They're living in Northern Virginia, and they really like come up from nothing to become him and, and four members of his family, along with a friend, became these shared IT staffers for House Democrats. So each office has its own salary, and so these Democrats would split their services, and they would fix the computers or what have you, and they would break. And then in 2016, the investigators in the House start noticing that basically Awan and his family are sharing logins so that they can, if one of member of their IT team is out, but they're supposed to work in one particular office. Someone else can log into the computer and do the work for them, even if they don't necessarily have the permissions to do that. I mean, it's not ideal, 
obviously, in terms of information security, but it's kind of a minor thing. But then basically, these investigators who included a guy who was a Republican staffer on the Benghazi committee, give you an idea where he's coming from, they lock them out of the system. What becomes kind of a boring, I think, run-of-the-mill bureaucracy story gets picked up by the Daily Caller and this reporter, Luke Rosiak, who I've sort of dealt with his antics going back to covering local media. What do you, what do you mean by that? Yeah, I used to cover local media in D.C. under the pseudonym D.C. Porcupine. This Luke Rosiak guy, he has a history of, I would say, exaggerating stories or stories that facts later come out and raise questions about what his reporting looked like. So in this case, he was working for The Daily Caller, and he sort of seized on this idea of Pakistani immigrants being locked out of the systems in the house. And you have to keep in mind, this was also at a time where this is in 2017. So there's a lot of talk about like Democratic email security. And Trump supporters were looking for something to distract or to say, well, maybe it wasn't Russian hackers who hacked the DNC. Maybe it was a whistleblower or another leaker. And that's what they also did with Seth Rich, right? He was working at the DNC and they were like, well, maybe he did it and Hillary Clinton murdered him for it. And in this case, Imran Awan, one of the offices he worked in was Debbie Wasserman Schultz, who's also the head of the DNC. So technically it wouldn't make any sense how he would get access to DNC emails, but they kind of seized on this. And the Daily Caller describes these folks as like rogue IT staffers. And this thing snowballs into, you know, people claiming that this guy was running like a spy ring out of the house. And these were Pakistani spies who had infiltrated all these house committees. And it's a story, obviously, right-wing media could really sink their teeth into. Okay, at least some of the crazier Russiagate bullshit was based on an actual document. It was a bullshit, largely speaking, document. But like the Steele dossier and memos did exist. Is this stuff just based on literally nothing? Is there even a shred of something to hang your hat on? I mean, it's based on this kind of like credential sharing thing in the system. But these house investigators found, I mean, they were also like storing their kids homework on a server. I mean, look, it's not like ideal tech guy behavior, but it certainly is not a spy ring. And so these folks really found their lives upended. This reached the levels of we had Republican senators were looking at their immigration files. And we had people like Louis Gohmert in the house. These Republicans were like really pressured. DOJ, oh, you got to investigate this guy. And then ultimately, meanwhile, he's terrified. He saw what happened at Comet Ping Pong. His family basically flees their house, pulls his kids out of school. They think they're going to get murdered. Donald Trump is talking about him, calling him this Pakistani fraudster. So this was probably like mid-2017. Right, right. So is Donald Trump tweeting about him or talking about him on Fox News? Or- yeah, he's tweeting about him. He's calling him the Pakistani fraudster. He's saying this, why doesn't Robert Mueller look into this Pakistani spy guy? And, you know, suddenly this is a family that has not a lot of resources, suddenly finds themselves. He's a citizen, but I mean, obviously they're immigrants and suddenly he finds himself really at this huge storm. And ultimately, under all this pressure from Republicans, DOJ charges him with this, basically a bank fraud case where he had said he had taken out money to help his father. He had taken a home equity loan to help his father who was dying of cancer. And he had said he owned a house when in fact he rented it. The money had already been paid back. It's one of these things where sort of like if they go through your files, they potentially are going to find something to charge you with. Point being, none of this had anything to do with the House of Representatives or sponsors. And ultimately, the judge was like, seems like you basically did nothing wrong here. I mean, he got three months of probation. And the Justice Department came out and said, very unusual. They said in the plea deal, to be clear, like we looked into this and this guy, the spying stuff, stealing from Congress, stealing data is completely unfounded. And to be clear, that is something that the Justice Department and other branches of the U.S. federal government rarely, rarely do. It is incredibly rare that the feds and DOJ comes out and says, oh, by the way, totally innocent, this guy. They, they use hedging language 
they say less than they should oftentimes, probably, or sometimes they say more than they should say. But it is rare that the DOJ comes out with something like this, which kind of gets at how much this managed to snowball. And why wouldn't it snowball? Because the literal leader of the free world at the time was basically issuing a fatwa on this guy. Yeah, I mean, he talked about, Trump talked about this guy. He had this famous press conference with Putin in Finland. People said, well, are you concerned about Russia hacking all these emails in the election? And he said, well, maybe it was this Pakistani guy. So, I mean, this is really getting on the like the biggest stage in the world. But then Moran thought that after DOJ essentially cleared him of all these charges, that that would be the end of it. But it wasn't because Luke Rosiak had a book deal. And so he comes out with his book that gets plugged by the likes of Sean Hannity and Tucker Carlson that portrays Imran as this kind of spy. It's really hedged in, they say, potentially a criminal or the greatest crime ever. But then in Luke Rosiak's on these speaking tour or he's doing these interviews and he's saying this guy's basically a murderer. Excuse me, I should say the quote here is he says he's basically a murderer. And I mean, these are just crazy unfounded stuff. I mean, it really is hard to stress how just out of control this got in terms of just smearing this guy. So then this Imran guy is like, I thought I was going to be done here. I kind of went through hell. But the Trump Justice Department said I'm innocent of all these accusations. And there's one point, I mean, he's considering suicide. He attempts suicide at one point. And then so anyways, ticking it up to now, the reason this is sort of back in the news and on my mind is that he's suing the Daily Caller and Luke Rosiak and the publisher of this book. And his lawyers think this might be along with, let's say, the Infowars, Sandy Hook lawsuits, kind of a sort of foundational one in this kind of new world of people who are the targets of these conspiracy theories, trying to get some justice in court. Right, right. And how far along is that case right now? It was filed a few years ago, but the reason I'm writing about it now is it survived an initial challenge from the defendants where they said, well, these people are public figures. Effectively, they were public figures because we made these claims about them and that sort of thrust them in. And Right, like who has ever heard about this guy before Donald Trump in the Daily Caller article? Oh yeah, I mean, he's like an IT guy. I think we see these cases more and more of people just having, and I think of Ruby Freeman, the Georgia very low-level election worker who basically Trump supporters decided stole the election and, you know, was terrorized. We talked about her a few weeks ago on the podcast. Kanye West publicist made paid a weird visit to her. So we see these people who, for I guess some like modicum of participation in public life, like having a job in Congress or being involved in elections administration. Right. Being a janitor on the Senate side of Capitol Hill. Right. I mean, suddenly you see your life like crushed into a tin can because people needed a narrative to what actually happened. And so I think Imran's story here is one to watch. And it's just always struck me that it really didn't get the attention it deserved. I think frankly, because a lot of Democrats were like, well, maybe there's smoke, there's fire. I mean, this guy was fired from all of his jobs. Debbie Wasserman Schultz, to her credit, kept him on as an advisor for a while. But really, I mean, it was just this witch hunt and this guy and his family were just utterly destroyed by it. Right, right. This is like an actual witch hunt, basically. On that note, let's move on to this week's interview guest. Will, you have booked for us an expert on TikTok conspiracy theories. My old job. Can you please tell us what we have on deck for this week? Sure. This week we have Abby Richards. She's a TikTok power user, I would say. A TikTok power user. She's a conspiracy theory researcher. And I think she's carved out a very interesting niche, which is both conspiracy theories on TikTok. And then she does some some debunking of them in the TikTok format. Obviously, TikTok is a fertile ground for this. I think of the Travis Scott concert in Houston was a satanic sacrifice, which we touched on on the podcast. And she's really knocking these down. She also has a chart of conspiracy theories folks may have seen on the internet that I think is interesting. This is really where all the big conspiracy theories are growing now. So I think she'll have some interesting thoughts. 
Fever Dreams, like all Daily Beast journalism, exists because of the generous support of Beast Inside members, the people who pay to access Daily Beast reporting and who are, quite frankly, our favorite people on the face of the planet. Want to get in on all the action? Join now and get unlimited access to Beast reporting, plus access to members-only podcast episodes, events, and much more. Head to feverdreams.thedailybeast.com today to see what you've been missing. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Fever Dreams listeners, we have a special treat for you today. This week's guest is none other than Abby Richards. She is what we like to lovingly describe as a TikTok power user who goes around debunking conspiracy theories on the vast online. Also, for this interview, the other voice you will be hearing asking questions will be that of our esteemed producer, Jesse Cannon. Will Summer is taking a much-needed break from the process. Abby, Welcome to Fever Dreams. How are you doing this week? So much better now that you've called me a TikTok power user. Wow. Is that not something you've ever been called before? No, not until today. <laughs> oh, wow. Nobody's ever tried to use that line on you before. Nope. I feel like a little bit of a trailblazer here. So, Abby, tell our audience how you got into being the TikTok conspiracy theory police. How does one launch themselves into that? I don't know if you would call it a hobby or a calling, whatever you would call it. Yeah, I would call it an obsession, there I we suppose. Go. <laughs> and I think that one would have to follow their obsessions as deep as they go to kind of end up in that weird niche of a rabbit hole. I really got on TikTok at the start of like lockdown, like early, like March 2020, and just found it to be the most interesting and wonderful and horrific thing that I had ever seen. And I went viral for kicking a water bottle. Like it was so weird and the discoverability on the app was so weird and the things I was learning on the app were wonderful and the kind of exposure to the world I got was wonderful. And that eventually led to me kind of becoming a creator on the app, getting involved, especially in the environmental spheres on the app, because that's where my background really is. And then... As I was on there, just got exposed to more and more misinformation and continued to have to debunk it. And eventually it kind of became my job. Give us an example of like, what was your gateway drug into going on a debunking binge? Do you remember the first thing that sort of struck you as, oh my God, this is batshit and I need to dissect it as such? I think the first thing, like my earliest exposure to it would be there was so many sex trafficking panic like myths, zip ties on bags, people hiding under cars, marking your cars, text messages about packages being a trafficking technique, a new trafficking technique. And all of that was, those were hoaxes. And people just on an unprecedented scale were just completely buying into them. Right. It's like the modern day version of when we were kids and our parents 
would be convinced because they heard it as an aside on the local news once or saw something on the early internet that, oh, when you're uh, getting into your car in the parking garage, don't take the flyer off of the windshield. If you take the flyer off the windshield, you and your children will get chloroformed and sold into sex slavery. Yeah, yes, it's exactly like that. It's like, I'd say like urban legends on cocaine, like (laughs) juiced up. Like really bad cocaine. Like, really cheap, stepped-on They mixed cocaine. cocaine with steroids and injected it into some urban legends. It, like, reminds me of, like, all the urban legends about, like, gangs and, like, flashing lights and whatnot. Kind of all of that got escalated into this, like, massive sex trafficking panic. Got it. Talk to me about the conspiracy theory chart and how did that get started? Ooh, that was an accident. That was... <laughs> Actually, everything I did was an accident. So that I was having a conversation with somebody and we were talking about conspiracy theories and we were talking about which ones, if you had to believe in some, which ones would you believe in? And I knew about how dangerous conspiracies were and how hateful they get. But at the same time, I felt like there needed to be some sort of organization just to think about it in my head of like, at what point are these incredibly dangerous? And at what point are they genuine questions to have and like ways that we should be questioning authority? And how do we draw that line? And like, does there exist a realm where you can have just fun conspiracies, maybe? And so those were all questions that I had. And I just drew out an upside down pyramid and started making labels and people really found it helpful for thinking about it. And you got some heat from some people on TikTok, if I recall correctly, for this particular chart, including for putting Iran-Contra in there. Is that correct? Tell me a little bit more about that. Oh, I did end up removing it because it was honestly a miscommunication. Like I put it in the we have questions category. And when I and all the people who like also reviewed the chart were doing it, like we really were writing that with the idea of like Reagan's involvement, but that wasn't explicitly said on the chart. So people thought that we were asking questions about whether or not Iran-Contra happened. Right. Like whether the physical missiles actually existed. (laughs) That was never anything that was called into doubt. So it's just really a misunderstanding And I think I could have communicated it better on the chart and I didn't. So I ended up taking it off for like the updated versions. I have to say, I'm a little upset because you're telling me that Arul Levine wasn't actually replaced. I wanted to believe that so badly that now I'm kind of taken out of myself here. It's hard to reckon with these truths, Jesse. I don't know what to tell you. (laughs) I don't think she was replaced by a woman named Melissa. I will say that's one of those ones where I actually commend the internet on how much they willed evidence into existence through groupthink. I think the effort was admirable on that one. Honestly, there's a lot of those. Like the times I look at the amount of, the sheer amount of groupthink happening and I'm like, there had to be a lot of brains involved here. Can you give us an example or two of that? Like the nuttiest kind of shit that scores upon scores of TikTok users actually at least seem to believe. Ooh, there's so many. The one that I think comes to mind is the birds aren't real. Well, that one's satire. I don't give that one normal conspiracy ranking. And I had it on the chart the first year I did it because the chart's two years old now. But like the first time I did it, I put birds aren't real on. And then people were like, there was a lot of debate about whether or not it's satire. And it really was created by somebody who was intending for it to be satire. And I enjoy it so much for that sake. I couldn't include it on there. I think that all of the manifest 
foundation and like witch talk kind of conspiracy side of things where they get very into like astral projecting into different realms. And like one person will go on TikTok and say that like they astral projected and like they weren't able to access Area 51 in their astral projection. And because of that, like it's blocked off by the CIA and like there's entire kind of realms of canon built around people going on TikTok making these claims. When you're surfing this stuff, do you find that the most prominent purveyors of this type of stuff, do they come from a particular ideological bent or partisan stripe or is it kind of all over the map in what you've studied? It's something that we're trying to figure out. I would say that it depends on the type of misinformation and conspiracy that we're really looking into. On TikTok, absolutely. The far right on TikTok is very conspiracy adjacent. And you can really see kind of QAnon's influence on just the mentality that they have when it comes to the videos they're sharing and the videos they're creating and what topics they want to talk about and how they talk about them. When it comes to like wider spread conspiracies on the app. A lot of those tend to be often like rooted in Christian mythology a lot of the times, often like not explicitly, but sometimes explicitly. And then a lot of them just seem to be more obsessed with like celebrities, a lot of Illuminati sort of conspiracies, history conspiracies, or even more outlandish, like very escapist we live in another dimension and it's all being hidden from us sort of conspiracies. And those definitely hit younger people of any political leaning, not necessarily just on the right. And you were mentioning something about the chart earlier that you created, that one of the points was to sort of catalog conspiracy theories that you personally, I guess I'm using the royal you here, believe in or could very well possibly believe in. What was your addition to that rubric? What was the first thing that sprung to your mind when you were talking to people about these? What is your idea of a conspiracy theory that you believe or might believe? Well, I guess there's such a big difference between a conspiracy and a conspiracy theory. And I tend to really not believe in any conspiracy theory because they are so vast and complex, and they tend to really draw us away from the much more complex real world problems that we should be focusing on. Now, when it comes to like actual power abuse and like conspiracies occurring and people abusing like their power, that is a hundred percent real. And I encourage people to be calling it out. It's just that I think, and there's that energy that conspiracies have of attempting to call out power and attempting to hold power to account. Uh, but they kind of miss the mark by just going for story, like stories and fairy tales instead. Uh, but it's so important that like when we are looking at like how people in power abuse their power, it's so crucial that we understand how they've historically done it and like what they're likely to be doing now. Right. And you tell me if this would qualify. Um, if you ask me that question and ask for my addition to it, I think the first thing I would think is the CIA put Nelson Mandela behind bars in South Africa. Would that apply? Because I'm not sure there is a smoking gun or something that has been unearthed in some U.S. intelligence archive to show that the CIA definitely supplied the South African authorities with Nelson Mandela's whereabouts to imprison him. But that is one that 
if it were ever revealed to be 110% true, I would 1000% already believe it. Does that qualify as a conspiracy theory in your mind? Would that make your chart? Or is that not out there enough? I mean, I would put it in the we have questions section. And like the thing about my chart, and I mean, I always feel like I have to say this, that like I'm not a source of definitive truth. This is just a framework. Like you could disagree on many things about the chart, especially when it comes to like where certain things are placed. Like we all have different beliefs and limits, but things change. Our knowledge of what is happening and has happened changes. Science changes. Politics changes. So when we learn more about about a situation, the step to take would be to kind of move it down from the we have questions category into this like real conspiracies that actually happened. Because a lot of those were at one point things that like weren't confirmed, things we didn't know about, right? Like there had to be a whistleblower. There had to be some amount of information leaked. Right. Like CIA connections to drug trafficking rings during the Cold War in Latin America. That was a conspiracy theory until it was no longer a theory, of course. But when you're dealing with this type of stuff, what makes TikTok conspiracy theory proliferation different than what you see on various other forms of online platforms or chain emails or social media like or other forms of mass media. Is there something unique or particularly striking about how it proliferates on a platform like TikTok? Yeah, the amplification is essentially unprecedented. Like the seed at which you can consume that much information, that many TikToks that quickly and the way in which like the algorithm recommends that you watch this video next, watch that it just automatically feeds you a video that it, it thinks you'll like. And that doesn't have to be from somebody that you follow. It doesn't have to be from a friend who shared it, like how it is on Twitter or Facebook. You have to follow pages or have friends who share something. It's all just recommended based on how other users interact with something, which means if something goes viral, it goes very viral. And like millions of people can see something that's essentially just an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory that they don't understand is hateful. And it's often in the shape of this entertaining video and it can get millions and millions of views. Right. It's typically a very young audience. And I can't believe I'm fucking saying this, but for our uninitiated listeners and maybe people who are maybe a little bit older or maybe uh, not so in touch with this technology, can you please explain what TikTok is? <laughs> ah, I love this question. Okay. So, you know, when you open your phone, TikTok is a social media platform of sorts that is kind of like a personalized television where users create videos. And when you open up your TikTok app, you're immediately on your For You page, which recommends videos specifically for you. And there's a lot of jokes about how quickly the algorithm kind of gets to know who you are. Oftentimes, we've heard of people like whose algorithm realized that they were gay before they did. Like mm -hmm, <laughs> mm -hmm. the algorithm is very good. It's very good at keeping you interested. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so it just will automatically continue feeding you these videos that it thinks that you'll like. Um, and then from there, you build up a for you page that's entirely your own. Right. And tell us more about the role this for you page plays in all of this. It's really the backbone of where all of the information that we're seeing shared on TikTok is happening. For the most part, it's not from visiting profiles. I mean, 
that can happen. Like people can go visit a profile or go, their friends will share videos with them. But for the most part, it's a very personal experience of you are scrolling TikTok where you've shown a video, you watch that video or don't watch that video. And then the algorithm predicts what you might like next and feeds you another video. So really it's where you're doing all of the engaging and where you can have the most influence on whether or not a video goes viral. To put it into perspective, I know people say when a video goes viral that usually if they look at the analytics that the views are 95% that for you page, that like 5% of friends sending a text to watch it, which really is like unprecedented for algorithmic recommendations, which is why I guess what you're covering here really does spread so fast on here. Yeah. I would say for like my videos, personally, if I have a video that goes viral, it's getting like 98% views coming from the For You page. So that's like people who aren't already following me. And then like 2% views of, from people who were following me and scrolling through their following list. And then maybe a couple more of people who were looking at my profile. But like majority of it is coming from the For You page. Right. And you mentioned things like anti-Semitic conspiracy theories on TikTok earlier or Hollywood celebrity conspiracy theories on TikTok. Can you get into it a little bit more about what other types of conspiracy theories really take off on TikTok in particular? Like what kind of subject, what kind of granular matter in there really tends to catch fire on this platform? I think it depends on the time. So, I mean... And like, this is research that I've written about this before, but like after the tragedy at Astroworld, conspiracy theories about it actually being a satanic ritual were all over the platform. So a lot of the times you'll see in response to specific events, these uh, conspiracy theories about it being intentional. Again, a lot of these like messages of Satanism with these like Christian undertones that underlie a lot of conspiracy theories. Then we also see, like, as I said, the Illuminati ones, so many of those, so like a huge obsession with conspiracies that surround celebrities and people with fame and money. Really, any celebrity, you'll, you'll find a lot of conspiracies about them, but especially black hip-hop artists. Who in particular? Oh, God. <laughs> it's Beyonce. There's Kanye. There's, I mean, Travis Scott. What is a good Kanye conspiracy theory that is big on TikTok? They're so vague so much. This is so frustrating that I, I wish I had like, oh, they all think that Kanye is a clone, which is like, I'm sure I've seen it. But so much of the time, it's so vague. Was Kanye replaced? Like, this is what Kanye looked like in 2015. This is how he looked in 2016. Like, do you see what happened? And I'm like, I don't really see what happened. Can you explain it to me a bit more? <laughs> oh, yeah, he got older. <laughs> like, I'm confused and I study this professionally. You guys, can you leave a little bit less to interpret? <laughs> got so last question I have for you here is in dealing with this stuff and injecting it straight into your veins and arteries day in and day out, what do you think is the best way to deal with someone who's really deep into conspiracy theories, including on TikTok, like including in a way that is not just a casual flirtation, but has devolved into maybe a scary seeming obsession. And do you mean like on a, like a micro level with like an individual person or like on a macro level? Let's do both. With an individual person, I always will tell people unplugging is a really great first step to get your friends to log off for a bit and see if they'll go do activities outside of conspiracy theories online and that sort of world. And 
trying to maintain that relationship and let them know that like if they want to get out that you're there but you really don't have to like sit and listen to their bullshit ideas especially if like they're hurtful for you to listen to now if you do feel like if you are in the mood for a challenge, I would usually approach people with like more of the just asking questions strategy, which is like really don't fight them. You can provide them with as much concrete evidence as you could possibly find and they'll continue to kind of come up with new conspiracies and ignore your evidence. But asking them questions, especially about like why these things are happening? Or what are the goals of this mysterious group? And who exactly is this group? Like, who are they? And how long have they been around? Like, who exactly are you referring to? And why do they want to take over control? And if they've already been controlled for 500 years, why did they need to start a global pandemic to take over control if they, again, already been in control the whole time? So just like asking questions and kind of, I like to call it just poking at those ideas with a stick is a great starting point if that's what you feel like doing. You don't have to. Got it. Got it. Got it. And no hard feelings if you fail to convince these people that two plus 10 does not equal 11 teens. You don't have the power to change anybody's mind. I like can't stress that enough. Like you're not a wizard. None of us are wizards. Like we don't have magic powers. If somebody has an ideology that they have subscribed to, you don't necessarily have the power to just make them change that overnight. I am a wizard, however. Anyway. On that, (laughs) bouncing off that clarification, I just want to say, Abby, you've been an absolute delight. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Come back anytime. And could you please tell our listeners where they can find you both on Twitter and on TikTok? Yeah, I'm on TikTok at Tophology and I'm on Twitter at Abby ASR, A-B-B-I-E-A-S-R. And on TikTok, that is spelled T-O-F-O-L-O-G. Why? If you guys are on either of those platforms, please give Abby some follows. Abby, have a great week. We'll talk to you soon. And now, listeners, we take you to our weekly recurring segment of Fresh Health, where we introduce you to something batshit that is going on in the world today that you may not believe is actually occurring, but unfortunately is occurring in our starkly grim reality. Will, at the end of this episode, we have to talk about anti-vaccine vlogging from one's hospital bed. Unfortunately, it has come to this. Sure. So obviously, for about a year now, we've been dealing with the phenomenon of people who refuse the vaccine, say, oh, I'm not getting vaccinated, I'm not wearing a mask, etc., falling seriously ill from the virus. I mean, obviously, this phenomenon has been dubbed the Herman Cain Awards after the departed Herman Cain. Uh, But lately, it's just really getting crazy for me. It's one thing to attack the vaccine, spread vaccine disinformation, and then fall victim to the virus. But what strikes me is like, we've lately been dealing with this phenomenon of people who are literally currently hospitalized for the virus and saying, Ah, I'm glad I didn't get the vaccine. So first off, I wrote in the Daily Beast last week about a big QAnon promoter named Kirsten W. This is kind of a tangential phenomenon. But the big thing now, if you get COVID and you're a big anti-vaccine person, is not saying that you're in trouble because of COVID, but because you have pneumonia. Well, famously, pneumonia is a symptom of having COVID, right? So sort of like, well, it's not the COVID that killed me. It's that I couldn't breathe. So in her case, she actually did die. She was a big vaccine hater. She would go to vaccine events and people handing out vaccines and say, 
oh, you big dummies, you idiots, why are you getting the vaccine? Ah, well, I've done what I can. Well, in her case, she was posting in the hospital, oh, why aren't they giving me my hydroxychloroquine, my ivermectin? And unfortunately, she passed. But the person who's really kind of revved me up on this is this guy named Ben Bergquam, who is a, he's sort of Steve Bannon's Jesse Waters, you know, he's kind of a guy who does a lot of showdowns <laughs> with people. It's kind of surprising me that Steve Bannon's hanging out with him, actually. Does it, Will? I mean, honestly, I mean, this guy is like kind of a pretty fringy character. So he's a guy who has a camera and he'll kind of confront people and what have you. But anyways, just recently, I noticed that he's been hospitalized for a little while with COVID. And it's crazy to me, this guy who's, I would say, in his late 30s, early 40s, we know there's a big trend on the right of sort of saying, like, if you just stay fit, you won't die of COVID, right? I can sort of, like, do so many kettlebells that the virus won't get me. I'm looking at a photo of this guy seemingly in the hospital right now. And he, yeah, he looks like a young guy. He looks like he's in fair health. Like I said, I mean, he's, he's in his like late thirties, early forties, I'd say, but this he's recording videos from his hospital bed about like, I'm so glad I didn't get the vaccine, whatever. Talking about it. They don't want you to know that there are so many lies going on out there. It's out of control. It's disgusting, but people are dying mostly because they're unhealthy, but rather than trying to get people healthy, get them back in the gyms, get them to lose weight and stop smoking. I see people walking around morbidly obese with a mask on their face, smoking a cigarette. That's why you're dying. That's why they're dying. The reason I'm alive in large part, besides God's provision in my life, and I praise the Lord, uh, Jesus has been with me this entire time. But the reason I'm alive, this is from the doctor yesterday. He said I had strong lungs because I was a healthy, active guy. Uh, that's really it. You gotta get healthy. You got to get healthy. He's got the oxygen tube in his nose and he's saying, oh, you just got to stay fit. You won't die of COVID. And it's like, buddy, if you're in your 30s and you're getting hospitalized and you're in relatively good shape, that's not a great outcome for you from having the virus. So, I mean, it's just remarkable to me that this gentleman is sort of pretending that the best outcome for him would have been getting hospitalized. I mean, it seems like he had a really rough run of it. I mean, he's been on oxygen, I think, for two weeks. He's now bragging that he can go four hours without oxygen. Don't aim too high. Don't shoot for the moon here. It's one of these things where you have the cases of people who didn't get the vaccine and then they record like, look how terrible it was for my body. Get vaccinated, all this stuff. I've had a change of heart. But he's like the opposite. He's like, oh, COVID was awful. My body's been destroyed. But yeah, I'm so glad I didn't get the vaccine. Right. And I hope he doesn't die from this and he gets out of the hospital with his life. You said he's been there for weeks now. He's definitely been on some form of oxygen for a pretty long time. I think, well, he's actually finally out of the hospital, fortunately. You know what you got to do if you're bedridden? You got to do a MyPillow plug. And he's been doing it. Oh, of course. I'm laid up. I can't move because of COVID. But I'm so glad I have my MyPillow code Novax or whatever. So it does seem like he was paid for this. Yeah. Oh, he's been doing the affiliate codes like from his bed as he's laid up. It's like, look, you're going to get COVID because you're not vaccinated. and It's going to be a bad run. So you got to get prepared. You got to get your Giza cotton sheets. You got to get your pillow. Is that something that pre date so like does his business relationship with michael lindell and my pillow predate the COVID? The i have to assume so i'm not sure i mean either way mind-blowing in all the bad ways okay so hopefully everything turns out okay for him health-wise on this but this is something that obviously could have killed him like and in that realm of not at all insane possibility he made the decision that with his potentially dying gasping breaths he was going to vlog it's so sad to say like oh we're never going to get out of this people aren't getting vaccinated whatever i have to have more hope than that but i do think it is 
remarkable, the sort of rationalization that can go on here. You're hooked up to a machine. You got the tubes in your nose. And it's like, all right, I got to make a little anti-vaccine content. Like, hold my phone here, nurse. Also, in doing so, I got to plug the hell out of these pillows. I got to be a part-time pillow salesman while I'm potentially on my deathbed. I don't know why I'm surprised by any of this, because everything we talk about and cover on this podcast, this is the logical not even conclusion, next step to everything we cover. But motherfucker, this feels like we're in either a John Carpenter or a David Cronenberg. Well, that's why we call it Fresh Hell. (laughs) (laughs) On that note, let's wrap up this episode of Fever Dreams from The Daily Beast. In future installments, we'll also be speaking to some awesome reporters and other colleagues at The Daily Beast and beyond, from politics, popular culture, and other overfed, underdeveloped institutions. We hope you'll subscribe to us on your preferred podcasting app and share the show on social media or at your family dinner table. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Will Summer and Swin is at Swin24. Come say hello. This podcast is produced by Jesse Cannon with music by Brian Demiglio. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.